0: Welcome to a 2016 Kessler Foundation Research Speaker Series Lecture. Guest speakers for today, April 4th, 2016, are Drs. Gail Forrest and Karen Nolan, presenting Powered Robotic Exoskeleton Research. Dr. Karen Nolan is a Senior Research Scientist in Human Performance and Engineering Research at Kessler Foundation. She's an Assistant Professor of PM&R at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School, Clinical Research Scientist at Children's Specialized Hospital and Affiliated Faculty of Biomedical Engineering at New Jersey Institute of Technology. Dr. Nolan has extensive experience in leading the design and implementation of biomechanical research and strong expertise in balance, gait, movement analysis, neuromuscular physiology, rehabilitation robotics, and peripheral motor control. Dr. Gail Forrest is an Associate Director of the Human Performance and Engineering Research at Kessler Foundation and is also Assistant Professor, Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School. For the last six years, Dr. Forrest has continued to receive state and federal funding concentrating on the neuroplasticity, improvement in secondary consequences, and restoration of function for individuals after spinal cord injury. She has presented and published extensively in the area of neuroplasticity, muscular skeletal changes for individuals after spinal cord injury. Dr. Forrest has other key interests in the area of biomechanics as related to modeling algorithms for understanding control mechanisms in upper extremities and postural control during locomotion. All her areas of research are ultimately focused towards the improvement of functional mobility. This presentation was recorded on Monday, April 4th, 2016 at the Kessler Conference Center, West Orange, New Jersey, and is sponsored by Kessler Foundation.
1: So Gail and I are here today to talk to you about powered exoskeletons, and this has been going on for probably about the last four years in the hum- Human Performance Lab, and I've actually been doing this research for the last two years. In order to summarize what we've done in the last two years, you're, not, you're only going to see a snapshot of what we've got going on in the lab. Are you recording me? Okay. I'm tweeting. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Um, And we're all really excited about it. So everyone who's here from the Human Performance Lab, they know a lot of what's been going on, um, so this might be a little boring for them. Um, And so feel free, if you have any questions after this, to pull one of them aside and ask more, because we're all pretty excited about this line of research. It's very new for my area for the last two years. um, And it's also very exciting, because everything is changing on a day-to-day basis. And there's news even today that I'll go over at the end. So the plan is for me to talk and give you kind of an overview of what we've been doing in adults. Um, We've obviously also been doing this in children. We've kind of just scratched the surface of that and just started. Um, And then Gail's going to talk about the research she's been doing for longer in spinal cord injury for about 20 minutes. And then we're going to let you guys know a little bit about the devices, show you the devices that we have, and kind of answer any questions you have. So I want to talk a little about the utility of a robotic exoskeleton. For some of you, this may not be something you're aware of. You may have seen them, you may have seen tweets from Carolan, you may not be aware of exactly what they're used for, and I want to show you or tell you exactly what we're planning to use them for. The next is to talk about some very preliminary clinical and research results, um, and most of that's anecdotal and we're in the process of publishing that. And then the last is the efficacy of a robotic exoskeleton, which we're really just diving into. We don't have enough evidence to really talk about the efficacy. We're kind of getting into that with the research we have now funded. I have to go into a slide like this in order for you to understand the impact of why we're doing exoskeleton research. There are 16.9 million strokes that occur every year worldwide. And there are 7 million stroke survivors in the U.S. who can't independently ambulate on their own. There are many different therapeutic strategies we have to get people up and walking. And so exoskeletons is one of the latest things that we're using to help with gait retraining. I put this continuum together for stroke gait recovery because this is what we've been dealing with in stroke. And we look at gait retraining after someone's had a stroke. We then look at gait with compensation strategies. They usually accommodate with a pathological gait if they gain successful ambulation. And then eventually we get to a phase of utilization of assistive devices. We we hope for independent ambulation a healthy gait and an efficient gait. That's what we're going through for the motor plan or for getting back functional ambulation. What happens is many times we get to a pathological compensation or we get to a successful ambulation where people are up and walking, they're up and able to use their limbs reciprocally, right? So they're able to walk left, right, left, right, but they may not be able to do it efficiently or they may not do it with a healthy or quality gait pattern. Or we may be doing it with assistive devices. We give them a brace. We give them a walker. We give them a wheelchair. We give them some sort of a um, a cane. There's many different assistive devices that we can provide to help with successful ambulation. And this may be the phase that someone stays at for the remainder of their life. And we don't get to independent ambulation, healthy gait and efficient gait, so that they can return to an efficient quality of life which means they're participating fully in the community. They can go to Costco and go to every aisle and see everything they have going on. They don't just have to go to the local mart or they don't have to order groceries in. So it's really a quality of life. Can they get across the street fast enough? Can they get across the street and access all the goods and services they want to in the community? Can they ambulate over curbs, ramps, grass, uneven sidewalk? So walking from your car in here today, you probably maybe walked over the grass. Maybe there was some cobblestone. Maybe there was a curb there was carpet, every different surface you encounter for somebody who has compensation for their gait or a pathological condition walking, or is using assistive assistive devices, has to think about if they can use that assistive device over all those surfaces. Can they walk up the steps? Can they bring that device up the steps? So there's a lot more considerations to be able to access goods and services. So we wanna get to a healthy gait pattern, potentially without compensation devices, and maybe reduce those pathological compensations. Rehabilitation robotics. So we brought, as Dr. DeLuca said, some of our friends with us today, and these are some additional ones. And the goal of rehabilitation robotics, as we're using it for gait retraining, is to promote return of movement and function to a paralyzed or weak limb. It's gonna guide the patient through a repeated movement. So for the lower extremity, we're talking about guiding it through a walking movement for gait retraining. Um, And they can be used for the upper or lower limb. Right now, we're using it for gait retraining for the lower limb. And what we're trying to do for stroke is to help them move their legs left, right, left, right, have their legs, their hip flexion, knee flexion, lift the foot so that they can successfully ambulate. So the devices that you're looking at are from many different companies. Honda, Rex Bionics, Parker Hannifin. in order from that side to me. Parker Hannifin, Cyberdyne, Rewalk, and Exobionics. And there are even more. So we were on a conference call last week with another manufacturer. So these exoskeletons are being produced. There are also exoskeletons that are being produced in-house in house, in um, academic settings. And so exoskeletons for gait retraining for mobility are becoming something that we want to look into for rehabilitation, especially for relearning how to walk. I often talk about this because many people have seen exoskeletons where you're in a seated position, you put someone in an exoskeleton, the exoskeleton helps you rise to a standing position and then it helps you ambulate successfully. And so that's a very powerful visual. But there are other utilizations for exoskeletons that we maybe haven't tapped into and we definitely don't have enough published or collected data out there for us to reference. And so I put this together because when you decide to use an exoskeleton, the first thing you should really look at is what is the patient's diagnosis? How do you plan to use this exoskeleton? What are the rehabilitation goals for the use of this patient with the exoskeleton? How are you going to pair the patient to the device? Are you using it to facilitate recovery as a gait retraining device? Are you using it as something to help load and stand in in an upright position to stand and load the limbs? Are you using it for weight transfer to help them learn how to transfer weight from one limb to the next? Is it being used as a personal mobility device? Is this something that's going to be a long-term device that you're going to give to somebody and for the rest of their life they will be ambulating with this device? Are you looking to gain recovery of function or secondary benefits? Do the secondary benefits tie in with that recovery of function? And lastly, where are you using it? Again, are you using it in the home, where you have all of these surfaces, and in the environment where you have all of these surfaces to ambulate on, or are you using it in the clinic, where generally there's a linoleum floor, the surfaces are flat, and you don't really have to go up and down steps. And it's used in the, under the control of the therapist, under the control of your clinical team, and on a flat linoleum floor. So all of these considerations really need to be taken into effect, and there are many more once you make these decisions on how to progress and have a progression plan clinically with the device. And so all of these are considerations when you even decide, should I use an exoskeleton? And then you have to decide which exoskeleton is most appropriate for your patient. So currently we use the exobionics, exoGT for stroke inpatients in Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. As you guys know, you've probably seen some of the patients walking around In the hospital, we've been using that device for stroke inpatients for the last two years. So for the use that we've been using it for, for the purpose that we've been using it for, what is a robotic exoskeleton for, for stroke rehabilitation in the inpatient setting? So the device we've used again is the ExoGT. It's a wearable suit with anatomically aligned motors. So there's a motor at each hip, there's a motor at each knee, and there is no motor at the ankle. It provides overground gait training, so it provides upright weight-bearing, so it's got a backpack on. It provides an upright support with a rigid exoskeleton down both legs. You can initiate the steps by a therapist-driven control, you can initiate the steps by a weight shift, or you can initiate the steps through offloading and onloading the limbs or a lateral or anterior lean. So there's many different programs within the system, and why is that all important? What I probably should have started with is my background in biomechanics. So I study how all of you move all the time. If you ever come over to the Human Performance Lab, we know who's coming down the hall by the way they sound when their feet hit the floor. So I don't even have to look, and we all know who's walking down the hallway. All of us do. It's kind of a fun game. You can come over and try it out. We don't know how you walk yet, but if you spend enough time with us, we'll know how you walk. We know the cadence with which you walk. We know how hard you pound the floor. I hit the floor really hard, and I walk really fast with really short steps. It's not good for my height. But, but these are the ways that we walk, right? So we shift our weight, we offload, and we take a step. So what we're basically doing is falling forward every time we take a step. But the reason that we don't fall over is we have a healthy limb, or most of us have a healthy limb that we can then step out and land onto. If you don't have the ability to step out and land onto that healthy limb, what's gonna happen? You're gonna fall over. So we need the ability to shift our weight and load the next limb. Shift our weight, move forward, and load the next limb. And then you have to have strong enough limbs to load not quite as simple as I'm making it, but that's the general start of the concept of walking. So what we want to do when we're gait retraining is to replicate some of those movements, so we're retraining not only the process and the mechanics of walking, but the feel of how it is when you do it symmetrically and you're loading each limb. So the other thing about this device that we're using for stroke is it provides biofeedback. So what does that mean? Biofeedback can be many different things. In this case, it's chirps and beeps to let you know when you've met targets for offloading and shifting your weight. And A nice feature is that it's battery powered. So in today's day and age, we just don't want to be tethered, and in this case, you don't have to be. And this last line at the bottom, which is hard to see, is that it's under the supervision of a physical therapist. So you're not using this device in the inpatient setting without the use of a clinician or the the process of a clinician helping you put the device on, take the device off, and program it so it can be used effectively. So what are the goals for the stroke rehabilitation inpatient program where we've implemented in the hospital? Is intensive step dosage, relearning or retraining step patterns and weight shifts to be very task specific. So we want to put the device on and have them walk. What are we retraining? How to walk. So we want to put it on and have them walk. That's the goal. Have them walk with good quality over and over as much as we can. We want symmetrical steps throughout the session and we want to customize it to each patient's impairment level. So these are all of the things that we're investigating. These are what we want to accomplish. We don't know yet if we've reached that goal. So we're trying to investigate this and see where are we? Have we done this in implementing it? We know we've implemented it, but we don't know if we've reached our goals. So in case you don't know what it looks like, this is what inpatient gait training looks like. This person is very impaired. As you can see, they have a very weak lower extremity. They have hemiplegia. So you see their arm on the right side, they're not able to control. You see their lower leg, you saw he leaned forward and had a little bit of a destabilizing event. You see the angle of his toe as it's pointing outward. You see his foot has an ACE wrap on it to keep it lifted and up off the floor. And the therapist is on a rolling stool trying to help advance that limb by flexing the knee, moving the leg through, and helping him load to the next step. This is not research. This is clinically how they retrain gait in the clinical setting for an impaired lower limb she's controlling not only his trunk but she's advancing the limb through so this is the same patient now in a powered exoskeleton the first thing you have to know is these are two different ways to retrain gait the goal of me showing you these two videos is not to say look how terrible this is, look how amazing this is. That's not the goal. What we're trying to do is to understand how retraining gait in these two different environments, therapist-driven gait retraining and robotic exoskeleton gait retraining can affect long-term recovery. And we don't have enough data yet really to understand how gait retraining and the recovery process is affected by these two different methods of gait retraining. So you see the differences though in his inline movements, or the plane of his movements, the toe is no longer sticking to the, to the outside. It's a, you can only see it from the front view, so you don't necessarily see how much knee flexion he's getting. His arm is supported. And one of the major things you can see is how his trunk is supported, where the therapist previously kept pushing his trunk up to keep him stable. This is one independent patient and one with and without condition, but it just starts to get you thinking on how this could potentially be used. So I have a second patient to show you, and he was again a stroke inpatient. He's walking without any support besides the cane and the dorsiflexion wrap, and he has a bit of a destabilizing event where he leans heavily onto the therapist. And this is within the same session. This is actually while we were training the therapist how to use the exoskeleton. So you see that he's tethered and using a rolling walker because we were actually training the therapist while we were using the device. And now you see two weeks later, the patient is also walking. So from anyone in the NNL in this room, the first thing you should notice is that now he's walking and talking. So he's basically doing a dual task in this environment, whereas that wasn't the case maybe when he was concentrating so heavily on trying to keep himself from hitting the ground. Again, this is one particular patient. but we need to explore more to see how the utility of using this device can change gait retraining in a therapist-driven environment from an exoskeleton-driven environment. So we have some preliminary results, and that's what the videos are from. We had 58 patients with stroke diagnosed uh, who were inpatients in the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. All patients tolerated the training. This was very important because we can take very many pieces of equipment. Geith can make anything on a 3D printer, okay? He'd be happy to make you something? and you can put it on a patient, and you can plug it in, put batteries, put motors, and you can give it to a therapist. And if the therapist can't don and doff the patient in five minutes, and they can't use the paddle and the programs and the software and adjust everything in a quick environment within the clinical setting, within a clinical block of time, The batteries can charge, it can be stored effectively, and it's not feasible, it's not gonna get used. And so what we wanted to do was implement this into a clinical setting and see if this was feasible. What would have to change in the clinical environment to make this useful? What would we have to do to make this actually a possibility for implementation? So we didn't have any medical complications or falls, any skin irritation or cardiac or pulmonary issues reported due to this exoskeleton. And they were able to adjust it, they were able to use it for sit to stand, and were the therapists were able to use this after they were trained to effectively use it over a week. They used it for patients for about six weeks. Secondary uh, training happened and they were level two certified to be able to use it on patients. They were able to use the software so that they could power one limb and power the second limb independently. In stroke with hemiplegia, that's really important because you have two different limbs that are independently affected by the stroke. So you have one side that may be weaker, one side that may be stronger, and so the ability to control the software and independently control the power to each limb is really important. So this is just some really basic preliminary data showing the difference in walking. We're trying to explore this fur- further. You've probably heard this, this has been out many times, that. In the first eval in patients, when they got an initial PT eval, they walked about eight feet with moderate to max assist, quad cane, walker, and a dorsiflexion wrap. So anybody who doesn't know what that means clinically, it's just they had a lot of assistance walking. They used a cane or a walker, and their foot was ACE wrapped, as you saw in that video, to keep the foot from dragging on the floor or drop foot to help with drop foot. During the first exposure to the robotic exoskeleton, which was potentially within two weeks of their admission, so the time frame is not exactly perfect in this, um, they walked an average of 442 feet and 431 steps. So again, we're looking at the dosing, the intensive dosing, and the distance is an indication of how many steps they were able to take within a session. So in the biomechanics or gait lab, we like to look at the really the mechanics of how the person is performing within the system and not just how the system is having the person walk visually. And so we're doing a lot of work analyzing this data right now. And what you can see by the moving images is this is a person in the exoskeleton. And in the bottom you see the left tibialis anterior and the right tibialis anterior firing. And that's the the muscle that's going to help lift the foot during walking. And you're seeing phasic activation, which is good. You're seeing the person in the exoskeleton walking. You see the arm braced. And you see the steps left, right, left, right. What we often do is we want to look from the sagittal plane so you can see knee flexion and extension. And we want to look from the frontal plane so we can see those weight shifts side to side. And so whenever you come into the gate lab and you can see how we can twist the person all around and we look from different angles, the reason for that is because we really want to see how in this plane of movement we can see this movement and in this plane of movement we can see flexion and and movements in that plane. We can also look from the transverse direction so we can see rotations. So it's really important to see all different movements of how the person is performing in the exoskeleton. We want to know how the exoskeleton is moving and we want to know how the person is moving within that exoskeleton. And then we can also see how the person behaved without the exoskeleton. And the idea, again, is to see how we can change movement, and this is the same person, and you see a difference in the flexion over there, the change in knee flexion, that's the right leg coming through. And over here, you can see, again, you see particular attention at the distal end or the lower end, you see the foot, the change in foot position as it's coming through. He's sequencing with a cane, so that's why his hand is going like this. And again, we need to explore further to see more how this type of gait retraining versus robotic exoskeleton gait training can affect muscle activation, how it can affect the mechanics of loading, and how it can affect the range of motion as you see as they move through their gait pattern loading. So when we first started, I said it's just left, right, left, right, pick up a foot and load the next limb. As you see, it gets a lot more complicated as the muscles and the loading and the bones and the movement planes all get involved. So what we want to see is the presence of muscle activation. We don't want them going for a ride. We want them to contract their muscles to actively move throughout the motion. And we want to be able to control the device so that we can reduce the amount of assistance or increase the amount of assistance the robot's providing to help them retrain gait. Do we want to make cause resistance? Do we want to help them facilitate movement? We want to be able to control that so we can retrain gait effectively. And what we can do in the gait lab is look at how the muscles are contracting throughout with and without conditions, with the robot, without the robot. So this is just a news update. So as of this morning, this particular device received clearance um, from the FDA and a lot of that was based on the work that we did here, both Gail and myself in stroke and spinal cord injury in order to get exoskeleton, um, the robotic exoskeleton clearance from the FDA in order to be able to have clearance instead of it being just an exercise device as it was generically kind of termed, it's now a powered exoskeleton and that's as of this morning. So there's a huge team of people who help with this, engineers, clinicians, physiatrists, and they're not actually even all on here, who help make this happen. And this is the team from Kessler West, and the team is expanding to Kessler Saddlebrook and eventually Kessler Chester in order to make this more, uh, able to reach more patients and to increase the program. Um, we'll be having an exoskeleton at each site in order to really see the difference in how gait retraining with an exoskeleton versus inpatient with a physical therapist guided gait really affects long-term recovery. Um, and it really takes all of these people, the clinicians to run the robot, the engineers and the biomechanists to really look at the motions, and it really takes the hospital staff to let us know what's feasible in a, within a clinical block of time.
0: about pediatrics?
1: Oh, sorry, yeah. Well, I had a slide. I got rid of it. So, we we are starting this as well in pediatrics so we have implemented it thank you an exoskeleton down at children specialized in new brunswick to look at how we can affect inpatient gait training um, let to switch it over how we can affect the same inpatient gait training with an exoskeleton for pediatrics the limitation is the size so we can only shrink the exoskeleton so small so we're looking to target children ages 13 to 18. we've had about eight children in the device um, of varying diagnoses um, and we plan, and most of them have been outpatient. I think one was an inpatient, most of them have been outpatients, and we're looking to expand that at children Specialized.
2: We've been doing this since about the beginning of 2011, and our main concentration at, back then started in spinal cord, and that was driven because the, um, the, that's where the robots were. They were initially starting to want to go into spinal cord research. Um, and so we started back in 2011 with the fir- first earliest um, exobionics G, not exobionics um, exo, not the GT. So before I, so we've been doing it for a fairly long time. But before I even talk about any, and I'm just really going to show you what grants we're working on, not the background. Certainly, what Karen talked about, gait and talk about improvement of recovery is applicable to spinal cord, and it's applicable to MS. So I'm not going to go over that. In fact, I had to think today, what was I going to talk about? And so what I want to show you, what are these robots and the differences between these robots. And Karen's news meant that all of these devices now are FDA-approved class two. Now, class two? So class two, let me speak for the two that I know. Class two, because this is the EXO that Karen was talking about. And um, when we train, we use our clinicians, physical therapists, and we use techs, and both John and Steve are techs. What's, what John is going to do for you, he's going to construct the indigo. He's going to actually... And that's the benefit of the indigo. The indigo, you can actually just... Within a wheelchair, you can get within a wheelchair and you can set it up within the wheelchair. And so while I'm talking... Um, John is actually going to implement this. So, are there any questions before I start about these devices? So what we have, we have two motors. One motor at each of the hips and one motor at each of the knee. And in terms, John, you want to swing this plate around? Just swing it around. Swing which one? So I can see the full plate. Sure. So for those who can't see, the devices are very unique and very different. In EXO, we have a a broad foot pipe down at the very bottom, right? And it's very different to the other other foot pedals on the other devices. And in EXO, you'll see that compared to the other devices, um, it has a a confinement of the pelvic area and it holds the person nice and upright, which is exactly what Karen demonstrated in her video. And it's ideal for holding the trunk upright, and that gives that support. Subsequently, a person who's got a high-level spinal cord injury they, I mean, we have had, for those of you who don't know, we have had a person who's a, have got a C6C7 injury in this device. Now they may not have a hand function, so what we do is we literally take their hands to the walker. So this device has the flexibility of being going high, high lesion level. And I think you saw that in the slide in terms of what they're getting um, FDA approved for. The Indigo, which I'll come back to in a moment, the rework rewalk. Um, it is made by an Israeli group, and you'll see it's much looser in design. Can one of you just pivot this foot pedal around? Yep. Actually, while John's putting this together, let's just hold it there. Let's hold it there. Lift it up. Lift up the device without the leg. Alright, so let me tell you what he's just done. First, you have the pelvic piece, right? When you have the pelvic piece, you have a thigh piece, right? A thigh piece. Now, when you have the thigh piece, it's literally, you then articulate the shank piece. And then, through that, you can actually, the foot pedal as well. So it's it's just, this goes into this, which goes into this, and then you literally insert it into the pelvic piece becomes very much user friendly so the individuals um, very much do this on that can do this on their own or with minimum support this um, this company indigo has just rec- received a couple of weeks ago FDA approval uh, for spinal cord injury very similar guidelines to rewalk which are the first people back in 2000 I think about um, had a little over a year, Rewalk gained um, FDA approval, which is this one. So the guidelines for spinal cord injury, that means that these, this device for Rewalk, you can actually purchase it, given that you maintain a certain level of competency with a spotter, you can actually purchase it and take it home to use. All right, now think about a paralyzed person who's a motor complete, who potentially isn't walking and has the ability to be able to purchase this device. And then Indigo is now on the market and it's potentially achieving the same goal. Indigo by comparison, we are not here to compare the devices, right? That isn't our objective. It's all about ambulation. It's all about getting people upright. It's all about understanding the gait pattern or the recovery, not only of the legs, but of the pelvis and the trunk. And that's where we come in. But these two, You're going to literally purchase and take home. The gait patterns on these, that's what we're looking at. When I say gait patterns, similar to what Karen said, looking at how people ambulate, looking how the muscles fire in both of these devices. The EXO is unique because for spinal cord injury, which is my area, my background area, spinal cord injury and recovery, it allows a person who has a high trunk lesion or a cervical lesion to be able to walk over ground. None of these devices, unless you have triceps, can use any of these devices. So if you have a person who's got a high injury, who mm-hmm. doesn't have the ability against gravity to do that, none of these devices fit suit. They, at this moment, there is one rebu- there is one um, exoskeleton out there, but at the moment, these don't cater to that person. It's called the Rex and it literally enables a person without hand function to be able to, to use that device. All right, any questions? Yes.
0: So how, how long is the battery, how long can you power this?
2: How can, how can we power it?
0: So if, it depends on how well the person is in the exoskeleton. We've had people walk in these exoskeletons for two, two hours, 15 minutes, um, no problem. Other people, they may only be able to get like an hour and a half out of the battery.
2: Right. So in general, um, if we did have some issues early on, that the people within the devices weren't very efficient and we had issues with the batteries at that stage. But one thing about this company, this company is excellent in terms of the support, exobionics. So uh, with any issues that we had, for example, with batteries heating up, they address them immediately. So in general, when um, John was saying people walk for a couple of hours, that's our training sessions. We have one study at the moment where a person walks for a couple of hours. We have them and they will get anywhere within one hour, 2,000 steps. Yes. yes. Anywhere to two to two thousand, two and a half thousand steps. Overall, that study, they walk 200,000 steps, all right? They're in that study a long period of time. They walk five hours a week. We are looking I said before, we're not only interested in the legs, we're also interested in pelvis. Walking isn't just about the lower extremity. If you look at a person with spinal cord injury and you get the legs going, unless they have pelvic function, they're not gonna be able to hold the legs. Unless they have the ability for the trunk, they are still going to have impairments. So it's it's like this interaction between trunk, pelvis, and lower limb. Subsequently, when we do ENG or we do analysis, we consider all of that. And, you know, even for a motor complete, so even a motor complete lesion, that is a person below a level of injury that doesn't have motor function, even that person within these devices gains trunk function, which means, you know, that transfers back to them getting into the wheelchair. No one asked me how much the devices cost. All right, so I, this one I'm not really sure, um, the Indigo, I could estimate but I don't think I should do that. This one can purchase for about seventy-five to 80000 and potentially this might be in the same ballpark. You might say that's a lot of money. People in general are paying for these devices. I also know of medical reimbursement as well. So even though medical reimbursement on a limited number of cases are also ca- coming in for this device. okay. so, good question, I have no idea. Uh, I think when I said those devices, I should explain. Um, I'm talking about sign to the individual. Um, For example, if we wanted to purchase, I shouldn't make a note of point that if we wanted to purchase this, you'll notice it's very modular. The point is we have three different sizes. So when I said um, it's probably going to be in the same ballpark, that's for a person to take home. To buy in the clinic, because that's where the companies also want to go, both in the clinic at home, it's a lot more than that. I'm not going to state the cost because I um, don't want to get into trouble, but it's a lot more than the $80,000. Um, cl- and this too has a variable price, we're very fortunate, Rewalk gave us this, they actually donated to the, because they want to get into the um, research, they, they gave, it, gave us this, I should note that this device and this device are currently being used in the clinic. We have an operational uh, program happening in the clinic where we collect outcome measures. The clinic are very much involved, outpatient, even inpatient, um, but we do not do inpatient research at this point of time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So if an individual was going to purchase that, would it come with training? Like, does it just show up and hey your habit it like does, do these two come with it like actually that's
2: another no the two don't come with. No. It. Um, so that's a really good point at the moment I can't speak of indigo because they're actually putting that into place now it's very they've only just got recently FDA approval in terms of this and there are a number of centers that are actually there's these teams around the country and so on, they have to do a certain number, that is the person, has to do a certain number of sessions at, um, for example, care solicitor training facility, and, they, and the individual wanting to purchase this has to do a certain number of levels to be at a certain level to be able to take this home to per- use at home. I should note that this device and this device don't just take it home, because what's the big bug bear in the room would be false, right? So one of the, um, the FDA requiring spotters, so to take this at home you have to have someone who's trained and be able to fill a sort of take this at home. As I don't know about this one, but since this one got FDA approval against certain guidelines similar to this, exactly the same, then I'd suggest that it'd be comparable. Car- Any other questions? But I, can I just say one thing? The training for the PTs. You know, uh, we, go, we talk about this research but honestly, our PTs are the people doing the training, and I know with EXO, for example, we have a week training where you get your PTs and your techs and you train them. So our patient clinic, and I know Karen also, they come in and train for that week. We then have techs, but they need a certain level of certification, both preliminary and advanced, in order to, for EXO requirements to be used at home. Similarly, with free walk, same thing. They're a little bit more flexible, and that's the thing. You can't take a clinician out of the clinic. It's tough for them because they're treating so many patients. So they will do a weekend training to make sure they have a level one, not level two as well. And then with each PT, the standard is you have at least one tech. Now, I deal in with research that deals with locomotive training, that you have one PT and three or four techs. That's very expensive from a um, an outpatient or even inpatient model. So there's people out there would say, well, this is a much more efficient way to do um, rehab, potentially. But again, as Karen said, we don't know what the outcomes are. We, that's what we need to investigate. Okay? Yeah. Okay, very good point. In fact, I looked at the FDA regulations this morning for... Argo, which is the company uh, that produced the Rewalk. Um, and I should, let me back up a little bit. This this was actually a gentleman that had a spinal cord injury, a high lesion. He was the inventor of this one, designed this one. He's actually just invented... Um, no, let me back up. He's the one that invented this one. This one was actually invented, um, came out of engineers from um, Vanderbilt. And then again, this one came out of um, researchers from Berkeley. So you can see they've come out of research or personal environments, and then they go into the, the public domain or the commercial domain, and then you get this growth of a product. Say so that one. Oh, surfaces and stairs. Uh, um, Rewalk can do stairs, but for FDA approval, cannot do stairs. So it's got, well it does, and in fact our research version, we've had to have that turned off because we use it in the clinic and therefore we can't use the stairs um, software in the clinic. Okay, Uh, um, this, we uh, were part of a three study, I mean a four site FDA approved trial for the indigo, so we've used the indigo for well over a year. So We did not do stairs, but within that FDA we were able to do ramps and cutouts, okay. Um, this one, I am told, this does ramps and catwalks very well as well. Okay, we also train this outside. Train is outside. We train these inside. Okay. Question? Uh, yeah. So uh, these are all stabilized by crutches, right? Yes. All walkers. Great. Right, so all walkers. So is there anything? Can you comment? Is there any any um, vision in the field? People trying to go to kind of fully, you know, by Bipedal, um, actively stabilised type of robots?
1: You mean where it comes from, the pelvis well, of stabilisation? No need for crutches. In the far future,
2: whatever. So, as I said, the elephant in the room is false, all right? And, um, in fact, we're analysing now how people, when they train, <coughs> we potentially know they use their crutches differently or a, a single cane. To answer you directly, I don't know, because I think the the safety factor or the four factor is is a compound. I mean, you have the bricks that enables you to be able to do, but that's a much bigger device. What I just wanted to show you was give you an overview on our research. We have four pro, four um, grants funded at <laughs> this point in time that we're doing robotics research. Um, and we have, our lab has a long track history of doing recovery of locomotion for spinal cord injury. It's that that history that's enabled us to get all these grants. Um, So we have a lot of money invested. This is the latest one we just received off the RERC and primarily (coughs) we're now looking at stimulating. So we're building a stimulator that potentially is going to be transcutaneous stimulator that's going to go onto the spine that while they walk within these devices we are also what we argue is increasing the excitability of the person's ability to be able to walk. These are people generally that um, have the potential to walk or they can take a few steps, but beyond that they can can't. So therefore we're looking that if you, and it's coming from pre- preceding research that's been published out there on either transcutaneous simulone or other where you've got inserted electrodes, that you can increase that excitability. and. There has been one publication of this, so we're adapting that research to be a, a part of um, a robotic research. And you can see down at the bottom where, where the, what we're trying to te- test in terms of neurocontrol. The really interesting part about that, and that's the beauty of our lab, we are now imaging the spinal cord by using DTIs, so we're able to look at the spinal cord and be able to see within it. and that's Tony, Tony's work that you'll be able to look within the spinal cord to be able to potentially track any changes in the, in, in the spinal cord. Mm-hmm. We are also looking at brain function as well to see if there's changes in cognition. One would assume there is, we haven't yet done that. So that's what this research is aimed about. The people are generally training for uh, 60 sessions, five year project, at the moment this we've just started to build the stimulators that we're going to use. This one here is, um, Karen alluded to the fact of secondary consequences. Now, think about a person with a spinal cord who's non-ambulatory and is paralysed. The secondary complication to w- that is well noted. And you're talking about bowel, bladder, um, pain. Um, urinary tract infections is a very big one. Then you take that person upright and you stand them, just like you and I walking over ground. Forgetting about um, bone, because bone very complicated, but... All of those, potentially those, could change dramatically. So this is a DOD funded research which is primarily aiming to look at exactly that. Okay? And again, people are changing this is actually quite unique because you're actually training them for 36 sessions. Then we look at them at home and see what they're doing for another 36 sessions, so to speak, and so they're their own control. The really difficult thing about this research is getting this randomized clinical control because every person is very different, whether you have 50, whether you have 100. So, this research is using them as their own control. Then, we had this is the um, FDA trial that I can now start to talk about because we've just submitted one paper and we're about to submit a second, um, where we had two protocols. We had one that's aimed at trying to get benefits from a health point of view for changing medical insurance and that's what's driving a lot of these companies. They realise unless you have reimbursement, it becomes very tough. So one of the protocols was primarily aimed at that, outcome measures, the other was FDA approval. That data, we ended up I think over 40 people, that data went into the FDA for that that approval that they got and um, that data we now have in terms of databases that trial walked outside, and so we have different surfaces, different speeds, different surfaces, cutouts. What else? Getting up. One interesting part. I mean, I think Karen showed getting up out of the chair to stand. It becomes easier in one of the devices, which I won't go into. But one of the devices is more it's easier than the other. That's really important if you have a take-home device. What's, again, a really important in a take-home device is how quickly you can put the device on you and how quickly you can take it off you, okay? One other important element is how fast you walk, all right? So there are data published out there both for spinal cord stroke, certain speeds you need to walk in or to walk into the community. I'm not sure that's valid for a person, although you could say you need to walk at a certain speed to cross the street and get the lights but I'm not sure that's valid to a person who can now walk, who couldn't walk within this device. Anyway, that this one here is looking at um, stand up, walk under various conditions, indoor, outdoor surfaces, um, elevators, pushing the button on an elevator, opening up a door, so it's a very functional study. Why? Because it's aimed at the FDA. Okay. And um, this is a project we received a couple of years ago that was um, but another couple of years, we just went in for a no cost extension. We are trying, one of the elements of a person with spinal cord injury, if they're ambulatory they become, I would dare say the majority, if not all of them, become osteoporotic and also they lose a lot of muscle. So the logic is even if you're paralysed and you when you walk over ground are you then going to increase your muscle and increase your bone? I have no idea, we're still looking at that data. What we do do in this one, though, we collect, an, uh, as we do in all the other ones, collect a lot of EMG to understand how the person functions in the device. So we, in this one, we're particularly looking at the neuromuscular and mechanical response and seeing the changes. This is the one where people are walking any session, they're walking at least 2,000 steps, they train five hours a week, per week, um, they do two lots of maybe two hour or three lots of two-hour training a week, so they're walking the ballpark at 6,000 steps a week. And then Karen alluded to this, right? And so this is lower extremity and some upper extremity. So as was alluded before, you've got the upper extremity, you've got a person who was non ambulatory and is now walking in the device. Again, we, we are also trying to look at recovery. It's very important to understand, is the gait pattern in the device the ideal gait pattern? And we don't really have any results yet, we're still really looking at this. We have multi site studies, so all of our studies at least operate over three to four sites. We have a lot of people involved at each of these sites. We have a lot of PTs involved at the moment. We've probably got about eight, eight, eight PTs that are now trained in these devices. You know, I, I'm doing the research, but honestly, I couldn't do it without Pete Barron, who's just doing all the muscle skeletal work in terms not. Scalder, but certainly the muscle, Dr. William Bauman, who does a lot of the bone, we do muscle biopsies, we do blood, urine, we analyse gait, where I've got Steve and I've got Arvind, All of these people here at work very much in the device. All the therapists generally are trained on all devices, and it's such a big team and a lot of money. And... But it's really, you know, we have a lot of people. I don't know how many times this last couple of weeks or this last couple of months I've had people with very high lesions that can't use their arms that come and they say, how can I get in these devices? They're within a one-year post-injury mark. We got nothing for them at this point in time, okay? People wanted to be upright. And that's it.